Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. All right, guys, Uh, I think we're ready to get started. I'm kind of excited to talk about this. It's going to be weird talking about uh, The Beast Within because this is like a weird Mississippi set movie. Wait, The Beast Within? I watched The Beast. What the fuck are you talking about? Uh, Shit, did we do this again? Andrew, what did you watch? Uh, I watched Rare Exports. You said we were watching a foreign language uh, Christmas movie. Uh... (laughs) It counts. I guess Oops. he's closer than I am. Nah, JK, just everybody. Kidding. Uh, just kidding. No, instead, we're trying to summon the devil through podcasting so we can find the Antichrist and kill them when it's a baby. Yeah, exactly. Let's get through this, guys. It's our Christmas episode. Woo! No gremlins <laughs> at the door singing carols this year. Unless who is that? What's that out of your door, Aaron? My dogs. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your dogs, not the gremlins. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, we are going to be talking about Alex Dilla Iglesias' Spanish 1995 Christmas with the fucking devil. Yeah. El Dia de la Bestia, a.k.a. the Day of the Beast. So, yeah, we're going to ring in the New Year's with some uh, sin in. <laughs> Satan, Satan. <laughs> Hell yeah. But yeah, before we uh, jump into that, we'd like to reintroduce to everyone our guest, Mr. Andrew Parker. How are you doing? Hey, what's up, party people? Hell yeah. It's a blast to have you back because oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to blow some smoke up your ass for a second. First off, we did something we've never done before when you came on, and you, you were the one who pushed it for us to do it, and it was a blast. And second off, that episode did good numbers, man. Oh, it did? <laughs> nice. Yeah, like, it's done better yeah. than, than a lot of our other episodes. Aw, shucks. Of course, we are talking about Cannibal Holocaust slash Cannibal Ferox, because that was a fun <laughs> accidento we made. But yeah, that was a fun, very niche corner of horror movies that uh, we had a good time talking about with you. So it was very lucky that we all just happened to like have a lot of knowledge of the <laughs> Italian cannibal jungle exploitation genre. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's a fun genre that since we've done that episode, I've noticed too has become maybe a little bit more mainstream because I see more shit about it posted from time to time. I know there's a game I think called Green Hell mm. that was out on Steam that was been like pretty well accepted and it has to deal with that subgenre i haven't played it yet but uh i've been seeing that pop up from time to time so yeah just kind of one of those weird synchronicities that you get with doing podcasting i guess yeah that'll happen that'll happen see i'm fucked i run macs i don't have a pc so i can never play any of those awesome looking games sooner (laughs) or later i'll get one my pc is old so i can't either (laughs) hell yeah. yeah cool well uh 
Andrew, tell us a little bit about uh, some things you've been up to recently. Things I've been up to recently. I've been doing a lot more writing lately, a lot more, uh, well, prose specifically. I've always been Hell writing. Yeah. I've been I've been writing a lot more horror stories lately, short horror. I've got a anthology coming. It's going to be coming out June 1st of next year. This one's actually really fun. It's the idea is that every author involved in it picked a song from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and we wrote a horror story kind of loosely based around the song. Oh, yeah. That's with this group called Psychotoxin Press. And it's out June 1st. I'm really excited for that. I had a lot of fun writing my story. It's about an insane man who uh, hears music wherever he goes, and he has to follow whatever the music tells him, or else it drives him insane. So that's really fun. Recently, I wrote a serial for Shelby, Shelby Scott's show, uh, Obscene, which was a ton of fun for me to write. Pissed off a lot of her audience, which was fun. (laughs) She got a lot of hate mail for it. I definitely, I remember at the end of one of the episodes, she was like, oh yeah, thanks for everybody's lovely, wonderful, loving (laughs) comments. And I was like, hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I've heard that edge in her voice before. <laughs> yeah, I was accused of having uh, a mental disease, being a sick, sick individual. So Aaron and I both are subscribed to her show. I had been behind on a lot of episodes, and I saw when those were dropping because I'm friends with both you guys on social media. So like as they were dropping, I was seeing the response in real time, and like half the response was just like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> to both of you, to Shelby and you, because Shelby also like went the extra mile and like, used raw chicken to make sound yes. effects and stuff. <laughs> but then the other half, and I'd say the majority, honestly, of people were like, those are great. I can't wait for Andrew to come back on. And so I finally was like, all right, like, what's the big deal? Like Andrew's coming back on our show. By the way, thank you for coming on because we gave you short oh, notice. Yeah. You were down to do this. So thanks again. This is our Christmas episode too. We wanted to do something a little special. So thank you again. I was like, all right, like I'll skip ahead to each of the four parts and listen through them. And I was like, okay, I have a few days. I'll do it day to day. I wound up binging the whole thing in one sitting. Yes. It was the one day this week where my daughter was at daycare the whole day. She didn't get sent home early for a cold. I was upstairs starting to organize my comic collection, and that always takes several hours. So I had that on, and I was watching my now seven-month-year-old younger daughter. And uh, maybe there's something wrong with me because I found it an entertaining, engaging story. And sure, yeah, there's a lot of trigger warnings and a lot of gore and a lot of disgusting stuff. But I was kind of laughing at parts. And here's where my head is, because the idea of having children, especially someone like me, I hope that I can not only raise them to be a cool human being, but like to do good, to do better for this fucked world we live in. And then there's me who's like, I'm going to listen to this horrifying shit in front of my (laughs) infant daughter. And she's smiling at me and laughing and I'm smiling (laughs) at her and laughing. And someone's guts are getting pulled out of their stomach uh, slowly, which is a trope I always appreciate. Also, another trope I also appreciate is someone being like, look, at my work of art. And it's this horrifying thing. I have been inspired I made my own movie and last trope you used too that I really enjoy it might be a minor spoiler but out of context no one's gonna know what the hell I'm talking about anytime a character like breaks mentally or turns evil has like a heel turn and they sing something like the Pinocchio song like your character does at the end of the third episode that part made me smile so much because I was like I love that that's one of my favorite beats Yeah, I agree. I think with the gore that was going on, A, I found it to be so over the top that it is 
fucking humorous. Yes, yeah. And my headspace is also like, oh, this is like Lucio Fulci level. You can definitely see the seams on the makeup and you can like see the goofiness to the effect of some of the stuff that's happening that like my brain processes it that way and it's not as disturbing and it's kind of comical. But yeah, I enjoyed how much it was just giving me vibes of Nick Cage and eight millimeter. (laughs) I was just waiting for like fucking machine to show up. Well, the animal character was based off of machine. Okay. From eight millimeter. I was going to ask you. Yeah. Yeah. Eight millimeter is one of my favorite movies ever, ever. And eight millimeter was a huge inspiration for that story. A Serbian film was actually a big inspiration for that story. And also just some of my personal experiences. I don't know if you guys know this about me, but way back in the day, uh, I did fetish porn. You talked about it in the last podcast groups. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. I've actually never talked about it on the record, but I'll give you guys the exclusive. Um, <laughs> <Thanks>. yeah. <laughs> way back in the day, I, I did fetish porn and I got involved with the studio that was producing really, really, really extreme violent stuff where it was like chicks beating up dudes and they hurt me really bad. They fucked me up real bad. And it was to a degree that sometimes I thought I was going to die. Woof. Yeah, no, it was crazy. The producer and one of the girls ended up going to prison for a while. Jesus. A few years after I stopped working with them. Yeah. I had written most of it just based off my experiences working with them where it's like, what if they're going to like turn me inside out today? You know, (laughs) it's like I didn't bring anybody with me. And there's like, you know, this jacked girl and this sick fucking weirdo shooting what we're making today. And I had started writing that and I I was talking to Shelby and, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, I'd love for you to like write me a story sometime because she had listened to Crypta. And, uh, you know, I told her that I was wanting to write horror. And so I like got back into that story and wrote the first part. I wrote each part in succession, like after the first episode came out, I wrote the second part. After the second part, wrote the third part. That was a question I had for you was, did you put this all together as a whole or was this like an experiment in that sense okay it was kind of an experiment piece by piece and each episode i try to explore like a different aspect of having done what i did because like i said they hurt me pretty bad and there was sometimes on set where they just ignored my safe word or they pushed me past my limit and there was nothing i could do about it i mean it was fucked up yeah. it was pretty bad each different part you know i tried to explore this idea of having like your worst moment recorded on film for people to jack off to yeah there's nothing you can really do about it and then you know the idea of becoming their like slave thing because towards the end of me working with them i got kicked out of the place i was living at because everyone was my roommates were afraid i was gonna fucking die because i was just coming home so fucked up and uh sorry if this is getting a little heavy right at the beginning of the episode (laughs) merry christmas everyone (laughs) merry christmas It adds context. It's very interesting context for the story, because if you know that about me, reading the story, I think it takes another little bit of a level there. Yeah. Yeah, At the end, I I ended up living with the fucking people, and I was like sleeping in the garage on top of the bloodstained wrestling mat that was the set. Yeah. And that was a fucking weird, dark time in my life, but I got out of it. But anyways. (laughs) Well, the context behind it, too, because as each part goes, not only is it exploring a different aspect of it, it almost feels like the first one, despite it being pretty fucked up, the first part is the most humanized in the way that it, it's so much about 
I'm not going to say you, Andrew, but you, the character in it. And as each episode goes, you as the listener are losing your humanity, too, because it becomes less about, oh, this is my life and how fucked up my career is and becomes more this person becoming this desocialized monster. Yeah. And I think the way you wrote it and the way Shelby presents it really did a good job of making it was almost like Kill Bill Volume 1 versus Volume 2. It's the same story, it's the same character, but those two movies have very different tones mm-hmm. and yeah. like what they're dealing with. And that's kind of what each part of Obscene felt like to me. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Shelby even said it felt like Kill Bill. That's one of the things she was trying to go for with the latter parts of it. Hell yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting you picked up on that, yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed that. And like, I, I had a feeling that especially that very first part, was kind of from your experiences because I was just like, I remember him mentioning this years ago. I'm not going to ask him unless he brings <laughs> it up on the show, but I wonder if there's like personal experience going into it. Oh, yeah. Definitely a lot of my heart and soul went into that. It was fun too to be able to, because I mean, the main character is me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me. And it was fun to like be able to be like, get my revenge on the fuckers. Yeah. You know, there's got to be something yeah. cathartic about working through it that way. Yeah. It was. I, I'll say though, there were some parts of it that were like hard to write because I had to fucking like just dig into the old memories and like all the yeah. old feelings of that shit and then get through it. But I think honestly, in, in the long run, it was like kind of some therapy for me. And also, it was a ton of fun to write. When I finished it, I was like, should I like continue writing horror? Because I feel like this is my magnum opus. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to see your work. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I have continued. I hope to like have enough to release my own anthology soon. But I've, I've really fallen in love with writing short horror lately. Hell yeah. I, got, I got a whole bunch of stuff going on with that now. Yeah. So like also for our listeners. You do a podcast called Crypta, and you also have a project called Ghosters. Yes. So check that out. So I've noticed that you've been doing some of the Vampire of the Masquerade tabletop game. Is that a podcast? Yeah. Well, it's not in podcast form yet. It's on YouTube on our channel, Children of the Night. You can find that by searching uh, at Dawn They Sleep, like Vampire the Masquerade. Cool. But that's my buddy, Andy. He does that. He's a horror VFX artist, but he's been playing Vampire the Masquerade for... He said since 1995. Damn. Yeah, dude. He he yeah. knows all the shit, and he's he's a great. And that one is called the storyteller, not the uh, the game master. But that's a ton of fun. I play a like punk rock vampire in that, and we've got our whole little group, and that's a ton of fun. Just recently got into like tabletop role playing, and I'm enjoying the fuck out of it. Dude, I, I've done a little taste of it with D&D, and I, I wish I had the time and I lived around enough people I could do it with and like devote time to it. Maybe when my kids are older and they're on a more like set schedule, I can get back into it because I would love to do it again. It's pretty fun to slip into that skin, especially with Vampire. Vampire yeah. is really fun because, yeah, it's kind of like D&D, but a little bit different. It's a lot of vampire politics because you've got the different clans. It's like the races of D&D or whatever they call it now. You know, each clan has their like history dating all the way back to like pretty much the beginning of time. And it's fun because when you meet different clans, you're supposed to act a certain way towards them and and you all have your special abilities and all. I mean, so Aaron and our listeners on our our Patreon, when we talked about video games, I brought up Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. And there are elements of that in the video game, because, again, if you like choose to play as a Nosferatu clan member. Yeah, your playthrough is going to be extremely different from everyone else because you have to hide in the shadows and go through the mm-hmm. sewers. You can't just be out in L.A. out in the open. 
So it's an interesting thing. I've dabbled in Wikipedia, like the rules for Vampire the Masquerade, but it's a lot. So it is I haven't had lot. time to really do a deep dive. I've had to do a lot of reading to like understand the lore and stuff and to really be able to play my character. But it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. The lore is cool. It is the lore fucking is really cool. cool. It's fucking cool. Yeah, I guess it's the second most popular RPG to D&D. Huh. Yeah, I think like it's D&D that pathfinder and maybe cyberpunk are like the mm-hmm. top four but yeah awesome well thank you again for having you on Hell yeah listeners please go check out all his projects um i'll have it in the show notes as well once we drop right this on. episode cool i guess it's on the recommendations iron yeah recommendations we always talk about right at the beginning here just anything horror related that we've been consuming beyond movies or other movies tv shows video games books music etc so yeah andrew given that you were the guest what have you been checking out lately that you want to recommend to people? I've been watching True Blood lately. Okay. Guess what happened tonight? You got a date. Um, no. A vampire came into the bar. You know how many people are having sex with vampires these days? You would be surprised. People you know. Sometimes those people disappear. Apparently there's this vampire bar in Treefort. Fantasia. Fantasia? He set up a date with a vampire? What do you have, a death wish? You look like vampire bait. So are you saying you think I look nice? Vampires think about one thing, and one thing only. Drinking your blood. I think we need to stop seeing each other. (laughs) What are you? I told you. I'm a waitress. I've been in a vampire mood playing okay. uh, Vampire the Masquerade, and you know, you know, I watch Salem's Lot, but I started True Blood again because I originally stopped in the first season because I thought they killed the Lafayette character. I watched it like, like okay. 10 years ago, like when it came out, and I really liked Lafayette. That's what I was going to ask was, is this your first watch or did you watch it back in the day? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched it back in the day and I remember it really pissed me off when I thought they killed Lafayette. So I just stopped watching because he was my favorite character in the show. And I started watching it again and I'm really fucking into it. I think I'm on the third season now. Okay. I'm just chugging through it as fast as I can. And it is, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I have wondered how that show ages. I think my wife and I both watched maybe the first season or so when that show came on years ago. Derek is from New Orleans originally. That was right down the road from where I grew up. My wife went to law school in New Orleans. So like it was just one of those things where it was like we checked it all out of curiosity just because it was something New Orleans. Right. But I've been curious, like how well that show is aged when that first season uh, was dropping in 2008. And I think it was in production 2007. I think it was it started production when I was still technically in high school. And this is post Katrina, New Orleans. So it was a TV event in the area when it was coming out and it did come out so i remember that first season being huge and then it just was one of those shows that faded into the background and was always there until i think 2014 2015 whenever it ended but yeah it's always been a curiosity of mine because i've had a few friends watch it and say like no it's actually really good and there's a lot of character actors that show up through all the seasons so what are you responding to now primarily now that you've like gotten into it like what about that show is working for you What are you kind of digging about it the most now that you're a little bit into it? I'm really digging the idea of vampires being 
known by humans and their like integration into society, you know, now that they have made themselves known. I'm enjoying a lot of the vampire politics, how they have their sheriffs and magisters and stuff and like the queen and there's this hierarchy of vampires because that's pretty present in most vampire stuff where there's more than one, you know? Yeah. I I like their take on the vampires because they're not too silly. Like, you know, I've seen parts of like Twilight and stuff, and I think they're not brutal enough in Twilight. I might not have seen enough of it, but, you know, I've, I've always appreciated the vampire character as like a really brutal character. And I think they managed to do that in True Blood while also keeping them somewhat human. Yeah. In Vampire the Masquerade, you know, you can be a total monster or you can try to choose to be more human. My character in Vampire the Masquerade, he's trying to maintain his humanity, much like the main character of True Blood, you know, Vampire Bill. But, you know, you also have your vampires who don't give a shit about humans. Yeah. I'm enjoying that about True Blood quite a bit. Okay. Literally everything that you just said is kind of what I responded to with the Interview with a Vampire TV show. Basically the same exact idea that they are still trying to integrate into society and pass as, I mean, obviously there's like multiple layers of metaphor to that, but like they are passing as human, right? Mm -hmm. But there's moments in that show where they're like literally tearing fucking heads off and ripping people in half. It's like they are fucking brutal yeah in a way that you don't always see like they go full feral and that was really cool to see that balance and see the characters kind of struggle with pulling back from that and trying Mm -hmm. to maintain you know their souls a little bit cool if that's what you're digging on then i might have to give that show a further glance beyond and just i guess revisit the whole thing as hell i don't remember anything about season one i watched it so long ago so might be time for a revisit Yeah, I definitely think Anne Rice really nailed it with her portrayal of vampires. I haven't read the whole series, but, you know, I read Vampire Lestat. I read Interview with the Vampire. I really always like how she did that, where they're kind of towing the line of trying to be somewhat human and integrate into the society, but also, like, don't fuck with me. Yeah. (laughs) Don't touch me, motherfucker. Yeah, I literally could pick up a tank and throw it. What do you think I could do to you? Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, uh... Derek, I'll let you go next, bro, because I know at least one of the things that you're going to bring up, I also probably have. So we'll have a conversation about that together because then it leads into my other thing. I'll talk about three, but one of them is just going to be short and quick because it's not really a capital H horror. It's just something I think horror fans would find interesting that I've been meaning to for like two years now. I finally started making my way through the YouTube documentary web series called defunct land okay you have not seen anything yet it's beautiful wholesome safe and above all hugely enjoyable you dream it it becomes as new and fresh as the day it was born (laughs) so keep dreaming your dreams out there it's done by like a guy named kevin perjurer which is apparently a pseudonym i haven't watched or looked at enough into like the history of the show but i only started the first season i'm only a few episodes in but right off the bat in the first three episodes episode one and episode three 
deal with horror-related attractions. The very first episode is Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter, which was in the Magic Kingdom. So they did this whole like history about Bob Iger when he took over Disney. He really wanted to make it kind of extreme 90s because of the <laughs> 80s and 90s are actually were like facing some serious park attendance dropping oh, yeah. issues and all that. And he was trying to win back the teens and young adult people who weren't going to the park because it was so focused on either little kids or the families kind of vicariously living through their little kids. Each episode is only like 12 upwards to 50 minutes long. Each episode is very mini documentaries that like go into the histories of these rides. And it's very well researched, very well shown. They show you bits and pieces of media hyping up the attraction. They show you footage from back in the day of it in use. And so this first episode, Extraterrestrial, they wanted to originally make an alien. Yeah. Yes, Alien, mm-hmm. the movie Ride. They, I think, at first tapped Spielberg to kind of get involved with it because this was also kind of their answer to, I think, the Jaws ride uh, in Universal. And then Spielberg punted it actually to Lucas. Huh. And George Lucas was the one who shot down, I think, or some other logistic stuff came into play where they couldn't make it a capital A alien ride. But Bob Iger was insisting that like they make this kind of a more adult teenage extreme ride. And it was originally like this ride that was basically a horror movie experience where like you're strapped in. There's this quote unquote teleportation room oh, yeah. that these aliens from outside of Earth are like, you Earthlings, we want to introduce to you gifts from our planet. We want to show you the technology of teleportation. And then they actually teleport in like an alien specimen and it breaks out of the containment and the ride basically is like everyone's strapped in and it does stuff to fuck with you like the lights go out they spray mist and have like sound effects by your ear they ain't hissing right by you and the alien basically is a xenomorph in every way but name Mm -hmm. oh i'm sorry it wasn't bob Iger. it was michael eiser okay that makes more sense michael eiser (laughs) have either of you ever experienced that attraction Yes. No, I did it because it closed in 2003. Yeah, I went on it when I was young. It was like the first time that we went to Disney, maybe around like 96, 97, somewhere in there. Yeah, I remember going on that with my mom specifically and being like, that fucking rocked. Yeah, I I mean, I was uh, little and it scared the fucking shit out of me. (laughs) I cried. I cried. And then I got a little bit older and I fucking loved it. I was so sad when they got rid of it. But I mean, it kind of makes sense that they did because it was fucking terrifying for little kids, man. That was like fucking horrifying. There's like bone crunching sound effects and stuff. And I can't believe they had that at Disney World. That's fucking wild. It was literally like a horror attraction. I know I'm fucking up the history because I thought it was Iger. It's Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner was one who was insisting. They try and win back the teens and everything. So, like, just go watch this Defunct Plan episode. They do a much better job than I am because it's been a few weeks since I watched it. So I don't remember all the details. Yeah, I do like Defunct Land. I watch this stuff, too. Yeah, uh, there were a lot of things that ruined this ride and made it close down and get retooled into, like, a Lilo and Stitch ride. That's basically the same thing, but it's Stitch breaking out of containment. It's a lot more kid-friendly. Yeah. But uh, one of the big things was the main alien who did the crowd work and, like, build up. Uh, was portrayed by Jeffrey Jones. Oh, and uh, when it came out, what he did, that was <laughs> one of the big things that sank the ride. So Whoopsie. the third episode is all about the history of Jaws the Ride in Universal Studios. If you have never heard anything about Jaws the Ride, you really should check it out. 
because they tried to like go balsa wall with it. Like it was basically portrayed as this boat ride where you were brought to the sets of the original Jaws and then Jaws attacked the boat ride yeah. in the middle of it. And it was full of explosions and real fire and like animatronic sharks that were coming out of the water to attack the boat. Another traumatizing ride. Yeah. <laughs> and ended with a fucking tour guide using a quote unquote grenade launcher to explode the shark. Yeah. My guy, I went on this ride so many fucking times. So that same trip that I just mentioned where we went to Disney, we also went to Universal because we had some kind of fucking weird double park deal bullshit. This had to have been 97-ish because my brother Jesse was like a toddler and my brother Caleb was a baby. And we got to do the fucking baby swap off thing where like you wait in line, you get to the front, one parent can go with the other kids and the other parent stays in a little waiting area right off to the side and then as soon as you get off you just swap parents and get right back on the fucking ride right oh, hell so yeah. it was the bomb because <laughs> i got to ride everything twice at least the jaws ride is wholly dependent on who your tour guide is and how yeah. into it they yeah. are and how like into the performance they're getting because we Definitely had one guy who was like bored as fuck. He was completely in phoning it in mode and was just like, ah, there's the shark. Hold on. Grabs gun. Oh, there he goes. All right. Get off the ride. And then we had this guy who was toned up to fucking 11. (laughs) He was like Christopher Guest in Waiting for Guffman. There's the fucking shark. We've got to get him. Oh, no. What are we doing? And just like, ah, shooting the fucking shark. But everybody was like, yeah, whoa. Just climb like so into that guy because he was like really putting it on the entire time. And that shark is fucking terrifying because it gets right up next to the little tour boat. It's all on tracks. It's all in water. That's like two feet deep. Yeah. Yeah. But we have a great picture of Jesse. My mom took the picture of him, like, ah, just screaming, freaking out with this fucking shark, like, <laughs> two feet from his side of the boat. I gotta find that shit and, like, post it on our socials, because that was so good. Absolutely, because that's Jesse who does her bumps at the beginning of uh-huh. each episode. What they do great in Defunct Land is they show you each iteration of this ride, because the first day it opened, it broke down and it had frequent breakdowns, because guess what? Just like they learned when they were making the first the Jaws, actual movie, yeah. animatronic sharks are fucking pain in the ass to oh, deal yeah. with when they're in the water. This is a curse. Yeah, and like this ride, just constant breakdowns, tons of money poured into it. I think it was in the same year it opened. A dad fell in the water and the actual animatronic shark was coming towards him before they like, they pulled it back up and he uh, he sued and won, I think, won a million off of Universal Ooh. for it. And what really was the death note for this ride was just it got replaced by Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Womp womp. Which, yeah. So, unfortunately, this ride is no more. It was shut down, I think, in 2012. And it had, again, multiple iterations. It was the most dangerous, it sounds like, back when it first opened in 1990. But again, check out this defunct land as well. It's a lot of fun. That was an awesome ride. And man, does Universal Studios like their fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if y'all ever rode the earthquake ride, but that one also had a ton Uh of fire. And I didn't even like that one when I was a kid. I mean, it was awesome, but I like hated it because the fire was always so hot. (laughs) 
<laughs> when the the tanker truck crashes. Yeah, a lot of guests were saying, at least in one of the iterations of the Jaws ride, the fire was so bad that it almost felt like your eyebrows yeah. were getting singed as you were going through it. But uh, moving on, let's go to that movie that you and I are both going to probably talk about, Aaron. Hell yeah. I took your advice. I followed up watching The Lift by watching Dick Massa's other great movie. And, and Andrew, if you've never seen this, add it to your list. It's called Amsterdam from 1988, a Dutch slasher film. Interesting. Hell yeah. seen it a dutch slasher film about a serial killer going around amsterdam murdering people in a fucking full scuba suit because they're like going through the fucking canals and just popping up (laughs) killing people and then escaping the police again it's such a fun concept that again it felt like a larry cohen movie yeah and i didn't realize just how many canals there are in fucking amsterdam so it was interesting to see like the overhead shots of the entire city and like see the canal system and it's just littered with canals hundreds of canals so it's a really interesting premise it had a fairly interesting twist almost giallo-esque where it's just and then it's this person yeah. kind of thing it had the same at least main character as the main character from the lift his other horror movie it is the same actor but i would love if yeah it that's was actually like, the same, same actor. character if, if that yeah, guy just character. went on to become a cop but yeah, Hube Staple or whatever, or Stapel or whatever it is, I can't pronounce it. He's like the detective in this chasing after this guy. There is a phenomenal chase scene on the canals when he's finally like going after the killer. That chase scene, like in the speedboats, was so good. And it kept going and going and going. And they kept doing more and more insane shit. The idea of the guy just popping in and out of canals and waiting for someone to be just off by themselves and dragging them into the water. And again, I was watching this while like taking care of my younger daughter, like my baby daughter. And the, I'm not really giving anything away, but the, the movie opens with him killing someone. I think it's a sex worker. That scene is fucking wild. The, the scene goes to the next morning and there's a tour guide bringing like a bunch of tourists through the canals. The body of the sex worker hits the front of the windshield and then drags across the tour boat in front of like all these school children <laughs> and everything and everyone just screaming. And I fucking died laughing during that scene. Again, it's not a comedy movie, but like The Lift, Amsterdam has this weird black comedy Dutch kind of style of humor to it. The dubbing is, again, also totally absurd in this, but I would say watch it dubbed and it's on Tubi for free dubbed. The dubbing almost adds to that like weird black humor edge to it. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen the lift, Andrew, about like the killer elevator elevator? I have not. OK, so you need to see that, too. <laughs> it's not as stupid as you think it is. It's. Uh, I mean, it's pretty stupid, but it's also one of those like, OK, wow, this is way more stylized and art directed than it has any right mm-hmm. to be. 
there's like a weird domestic yeah. drama at the middle of it that is actually pretty interesting. Yeah, it's not like Deathbed, the the bed that kills people. It's like a pretty serious horror movie, or trying to be serious horror movie about a killer elevator. But then again, it also has weird black comedy elements to it that feels very different from anything else I've seen. That sounds fun. That sounds fun. I was always a huge fan of Stephen King's uh, short story, The Mangler. Hell yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. the idea of some mechanical, like, stationary thing that gets a taste for human blood. Yeah. You should add that to your list then, because it's very much like that. Once you watch The Lift, then I would turn around and watch Amsterdam, because Amsterdam is even more insane in some ways, but then also <laughs> he feels like a more mature director at, when he made Amsterdam than when he did with The Lift. Here's the other thing, and Aaron, I'll let you talk about, are you going to talk about the other yes, movie? that is my recommendation. <laughs> during your recommendation? Okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. But uh, do you have anything else to add to, about Amsterdam? No, it is a fucking buck wild, weird Dutch giallo. Yeah. I think the only disappointing thing is, by the time that they reveal who the killer is, it has been completely obvious for the entire length yeah. of the movie who it <laughs> was. But otherwise, it's interestingly stylish in a very different way. If you're used to watching Italian giallo movies or any kind of like Spanish giallo movies, even like it's very different in a lot of ways, but it still is a lot of those same tropes in other ways. And this was 1988. So, I mean, this was well after the giallo whole run had kind of gone through and a lot of the tropes had firmly been established. So. I'm sure Dick Moss was working off some of that, but this is just like such a weird hyper specific to Amsterdam slasher movie that it's at least unique in that sense. The last thing I'll talk about, uh, and this is kind of something I did really want to talk about since Andrew, you're on too. kind of going off to talking through obscene and everything else. And the idea of movies that are transgressive, maybe sleazy, but this movie actually is just so well shot. Like I think it kind of almost, goes beyond that. I winded up watching 1975's David Cronenberg's Shivers. Hell yeah. Nice. If you think you're not afraid of the dark, (coughs) if you think you have a strong stomach, (coughs) if you feel nothing can shock you, (coughs) if you say you don't scare easily, (coughs) if you believe you've seen everything, Then prepare yourself for a motion picture that takes you beyond fear, beyond your wildest nightmares, and brings you face to face with terror, beyond the power of priest or science to exercise. What are they? Raging demons from another world? Bloodthirsty creatures that must be killed? Or incarnations of absolute evil. They possess men, women, and children, and drive them to acts of unbelievable horror. No one is safe from them. No power on earth can stop them. The only escape is death. picture doesn't make you scream and squirm you'd better see a psychiatrist quick so shivers first off starts off with again another trope i love seeing a work play luxury apartment complex that's state-of-the-art called starliner towers out in this island area in canada and uh, i think outside of montreal the movie opens with showing you all of that 
showing you basically an ad for Starliner Towers. And it immediately goes into a scene where this old guy is assaulting, not necessarily sexual, but assaulting a young woman. And you're not really entirely sure of her age at this point in the movie. Strangles her, throws her on a table, undresses her, and then takes a knife, cuts her stomach open, pours acid into it, and then slits his own throat. And that's how the movie begins. It's later revealed this guy is actually this doctor character and this woman he killed was like this 19 year old i guess college girl who was having affairs with a lot of the men including this doctor throughout the apartment building and as the movie progresses you start finding out there's a parasite that he was uh looking into because this doctor wanted to basically replace organ transplant with using parasites to masquerade as your organs like say you needed a new liver we'll implant this parasite It'll take a little bit what it needs from you, but it'll start acting like your new liver. But instead, what he creates are these parasites that want to spread through basically sexual uh, transmission or even violent transmission, but mostly sex. So it basically turns everybody into the building slowly become rape zombies, (laughs) for lack of better terms. Every trigger warning under the sky as far as sexual assault goes in this movie. Uh, This movie was surprisingly terrifying and effective, bloody. I mean, like I said, it opens with a fucking old guy cutting open a woman and pouring acid into her stomach. It's Cronenberg. Body horror yeah. is kind of par for the course with him, it's, right? Yeah, Cronenberg likes his invasion, too. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of the sexual assault angle, too, which, again, it felt like a very uncomfortable watch, but I couldn't look away. In the hands of another director, this felt like it could easily become sleaze, but it was just so well shot and the story was so well told. I couldn't look away, and there's some fucked up shit he put on screen, even for 1975. If you think children are are spared from this parasitic invasion, they're not in this movie. Granted, they don't show you, like, kiddie porn or anything that crazy, but, like, implications definitely there of some really fucked up things that happen with kids. It felt like, was this his first feature length? No. Had he only done those two short? Okay, it wasn't. This felt like an early Cronenberg movie where he almost felt a little bit like he was trying to be a little bit edgy it's still that cronenberg master filmmaking on screen again it's a super uncomfortable watch i wouldn't recommend it for anyone who is again like trigger warnings for sexual assault rape all that kind of stuff but if you think you could handle that it's definitely worth a watch i think we'll definitely do this movie down the line on our main show but it kind of blew me away like i laugh earlier because andrew i said like obscene didn't upset me in fact i was entertained by it I was kind of surprised at how uncomfortable I was at certain <laughs> points watching this 1975 horror movie. Well, that's Cronenberg for you, too. Yeah. yeah. That guy just gets under the skin. Literally. Did, yeah. <laughs> did, did you see um, Crimes of the Future? Yes. Yeah, Aaron did. I have not seen it yet. That was so weirdly uncomfortable. Yeah. All of the like body horror shit in that is, even though some of the effects don't entirely hold up in that one, just the notion in your head of what is happening is still just kind of like a little bit. Yeah. The other thing about Shivers specifically is just, you know, like you said, Derek, you're not expecting a movie that is old in air quotes to be that transgressive, right? Seriously. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things where we are farther away now from Shivers in the seventies. We are farther away from seventies, new Hollywood cinema than new Hollywood cinema was from, like, fucking Universal Pictures, Neo-Noir. 
there's a bigger time gap there, which is wild to consider. Yeah. So in our heads, for our generation, at least, it's one of those like, that's old, right? Like movies mm-hmm. weren't that transgressive back then. Uh, they fucking could be, right? Like the original yeah. Yeah. Uh, Last House on the Left is another good example of holy shit, they went there, right? Yeah. But yeah, it's super interesting too, just from the standpoint of looking at how society as a whole is so dependent on human beings procreating. And how in so many ways, like we joked about in the last episode, that Agent Smith for the Matrix speech, like, human beings are a virus. A virus, yeah. (laughs) Yes, this movie is about a parasite that is reproducing within human beings, but human beings are just kind of the higher level of that in so many ways. So it's kind of pulling you out and making you look at the larger idea of all of that as well. It's a super interesting movie with a lot of layers, and I'll stop there because that's definitely one that we're going to do on our main show eventually. Yeah. One last point I wanted to make is like it even felt like he had something to say with just the idea of here's a luxury apartment building, and these, I guess, or it's implied that they are upper middle class to rich. These are the higher echelons of Uh society, and this movie watches them degrade into basically a bunch of rabid sex maniacs by the end. Love to see it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I highly recommend Shivers, but again, Go into it knowing you're going to be seeing a lot of sexual violence. That's what the whole movie is about. Because like I've seen a bit of Cronenberg, and I kind of know what to expect from the actual body horror standpoint. It's all there in Shivers. Anytime you see someone's stomach and it's like moving with the yeah, lumps yeah. or in their throat, that's always like uncomfortable. I mean, he definitely goes there with Videodrome and everything else, but like it was the other aspects <laughs> of the movie I wasn't like that knocked me on my ass and I was not ready for. I knew Shivers was about a parasitic infection. I didn't know how or why or what it was like i I just thought it was more like oh it's his version of the body snatchers but it's not it's not at all it has more in common with garth ennis and then i think stuff like that hell yeah speaking of garth ennis what are we getting across show i know right that's what shivers reminded me of it's like it's basically crossed but with maybe less of the violence and more of just like the sex angle hell yeah cool well uh i'm gonna complete our uh dick moss triangle here Derek, and uh (laughs) I checked out his fucking 2001 American remake of The Lift called The Shaft, a.k.a. Down, and uh, boy oh boy, that movie fucking rules in the worst best way. I think that elevator's haunted. You don't mess with the devil himself. Elevators are one of the safest means of transportation. Security is and has always been our top priority. The machine got a mind of its own, and now it's taking revenge. You still think there's nothing wrong with those elevators? You created this monster, you killed it. machine anymore 
and, and if you're not paying attention, he remade his own movie. Yes. The Lift came out, what, 1980-something, and he remade it in 2001. Yes. And it is identically the same exact story. It just does not have any of the, like, domestic drama at home, and instead has more rollerbladers slinging around New York City being rad cool guys Fuck yeah. and then getting sucked into the elevator thrown a hundred stories up and then spit out at cannonball force through the window of the building and then landing on the street below <laughs> <laughs> it's just full of that kind of insane shit it's the same exact idea it's a building this time it's the Millennium Building in New York so it's like a big tourist attraction the elevators are going fucking haywire. People are getting hurt and, and or killed. And there's a lot of, we don't want to shut the elevators down because business, question mark. Money. <laughs> yeah. There is an investigative journalist looking into things. There is an elevator repair guy trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. There is police detective that's looking it's into the, the murders, right? It's it's the same thing. Now, here's the thing. And if, if you're already like, what the fuck ever, this killer elevator movie, here's why you need to watch it. The cast is insane. It's super insane. So the lead guy, elevator technician bro, is James Marshall from fucking Twin Peaks. And he is basically <laughs> just playing fucking James from Twin Peaks again. He is just as fucking dumb and like big forehead, dim-witted, cannot put two and two together of what the fuck is going on. Naomi Watts is the investigative journalist. And they like kind of get a thing going in this movie because he's not married with a kid like he is in the original movie. Dan Hedaya is the police detective. Ron Perlman is the boss of the elevator company. <laughs> and fucking Michael Ironside is the German scientist who developed the biochips that the elevator is running off oh, of. Oh, shit. That's who he plays? Yeah. So it is <laughs> bug nuts to watch... All of these people in this nonsense movie, but again, a nonsense movie where he was then handed probably 10 times the original budget. So like the original is way too stylized for its own good and like way too technically competent for its own good and like kind of impressively mounted the entire production. This is even more so. It's just bananas how much shit he got away with and how much he was able to like really pump out of this production. Now, they only shot exteriors in New York and everything else was shot in the Netherlands. And there's also other weird crossover things like Ike Barinholtz is in this movie. It's literally his first movie and he's gone on to be like a super successful comedian and tons of shit that we like. And in this, he's the assistant to the building manager, you know, so it's like weird seeing him show up in a movie playing totally straight. Dan Hedaya being sweaty and insinuating all kinds of shit about them covering up murders. Fucking Ron Perlman acting like somebody's busting his balls all the time. Like it's, <laughs> it's these character actors doing exactly what you want to see them doing. Nice. To a T. The entire thing is just nuts. There's so much goofy shit to it. It is very 2001 to a fault because literally the movie opens with a giant panoramic skyline that includes the Twin Towers, Ooh. which is why <laughs> this movie got fucking shelved because it oh, no. was supposed to come out in like October and the studio was like, well, fuck, we can't really put this out now. So they just dumped it direct to video later. 
um, which is why like nobody's heard of this fucking movie that came out the same fucking year as Mulholland Drive with Naomi Watts. This was right around the time that she was really starting to pop and she's in this weird movie. And honestly, she's terrible. She's <laughs> terrible. This movie, her <laughs> accent is all over the fucking place too. Like she's definitely not nailed her American accent just yet. But again, this is the year before the ring, you know? So like yeah. there was definitely just a lot of, you know, nuts chaos probably going on. I'm sure it's wild to me. Cause it, it just hit me too. Yeah. That, Mahalan Drive and this came out in the same year in her career. And The Ring is the next year, which was another huge hit, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, like, her acting in Mahalan Drive is some of the best shit I've ever seen on screen. And then you're telling me in this movie, she sucks ass. Well, it's so another movie right now in this very moment, May, December on Netflix, right? The new Todd Haynes movie. Natalie Portman is playing an actress and she's playing an actress who is not really that good. You kind of have to be a good actor to be able to pull off not good acting. Kind of like when you hear somebody singing purposely bad, you kind of have to be a good singer to be able to do that correctly and be exactly the right pitch of bad. I mean, Tim and Eric have to be good comedians to pull off the anti-comedy that they do. Not just good comedians, but like good actors in general. You have to fucking sell that shit, right? So like, it is genuinely baffling. Looking at Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive and seeing, oh, she's playing an actress who is not that good because you see her doing the lines with her roommate and it's just like, oh, God, you're going to fucking sink this audition. This is terrible. And then there's the scene where she goes and does her audition and it's like, the fuck? like you're just like glued to the screen watching her do this scene, right? Because it's just electric when she turns that on. So we know that Naomi Watts is good, can do this. And then it's wild watching her in this movie and her accents kind of going in and out a little bit. And she's like, oh, yeah, this is Professor. You know, she doesn't like hit that hard R like an American. You know, there's just like weird little things like that. Just <laughs> the fashion in this movie's terrible. And they just have James Marshall's forehead. Man, remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, where like everybody wore fucking leather, leather pants, leather oh, jackets yeah. like that shit is all over the place lots of little glasses and like a lot of that 90s shit like every other character in this <laughs> looks like nathan fielder on jimmy kimmel last week where he's dressed as fucking cool edgy guy it's bananas it's truly a fucking bonkers movie i would love to do this for a commentary eventually because i was genuinely fucking entertained and i'll tell you what the ending of this movie when a movie just fucking nails the ending and you just want to stand up and be like fuck yeah this movie does it because it slams to credits. The credits are like starting here and going backwards, you know, like a fucking elevator. And then fucking Aerosmith's loving an elevator. Oh, flight. perfect. Perfect. <laughs> it's the worst shit, but it's so good. Yeah. The Shaft, AKA Down. Again, it's not titled The Lift in America. It's bonkers. And turns out. Blue Underground does have a Blu-ray of this that I might need to fucking pick up because honestly, I found it more entertaining than the original. So yeah, that is my recommendation. And uh, I would definitely love to cover this as like a commentary thing with you, Derek. Now that you've seen the original, this one is bananas. Yeah. All right. So that might be the most we've ever talked about Dick Moss between this episode and last episode. Oh, yeah. Talking Dick. Like, that might be the only time we've been talking Dick. Yeah. Nice. Hell, yeah. Speaking of Dick, Hanging Dong, our main course. By the way, yeah, let's let's move on to our 
Christmas movie for this year. Hell yeah. Right on. So, as I mentioned earlier, we are going to be talking about El Dia de la Bestia, The Day of the Beast, from director Alex de la Iglesia. Padre, quiero confesarme. Dime lo que has hecho, hijo. Nada, padre. No he pecado, pero voy a pecar. Voy a hacer todo el mal que pueda. Necesito que me ayude a contactar con el demonio. So first of all, I know, Derek, I've talked to you about him. Andrew, have you seen any of his other stuff before? You know, I'm not sure. What else has he done? Okay, so, and it's interesting, too. I, I like digging into foreign stuff like this occasionally because I learned just how much I have not seen, right? Like, you learn, like, oh, yeah. There's a whole fucking industry in Spain that pumps out so much fucking stuff, and I've seen, like, the tiniest fraction. Iglesias is one of those guys that kind of came around in the early 90s and was big through the 90s and is still fucking working. So, his first feature, Action Mutante, Mutant Action, rather, is kind of a weird fucking sci-fi gore film. He directed this, which was his big breakout, which we'll talk about in a little bit later, like how big of an impact this movie made. He goes on to direct Perdita Durango, which Andrew, you should 1000% check out, especially now that it's definitely on Tubi. I just saw it when I was rewatching this movie that we're talking about. That is based on a Barry Gifford novel, the same guy who wrote Wild at Heart, the David Lynch movie. The Perdita Durango character that Isabella Rossellini plays in the Lynch movie Rosie Perez is playing her in this one, and it's an early Javier Bardem English-slash-Spanish movie. He is like a Paolo Mayombe priest and drug runner, and him and Rosie Perez hook up and just start going back and forth over the American border causing chaos. It's bananas. It's fucking insane. There's a scene where he's like smashing cocaine in his face doing a ritual. (laughs) cutting the heart out of a cadaver while screaming Jay Hawkins is dressed as a fucking voodoo lord in the background just screaming oh, and shit. Hell yes. <laughs> it's great. It sounds incredible. It is bonkers. He also did the Oxford Murders, Ballada Triste de Trompeta, aka The Last Circus, which is what if a fucking circus got drafted into the Spanish Civil War and forced to fight and kill Nazis? Interesting. Witching and bitching. That was kind of a big like indie horror hit in the early 2010s. The Bar, and then most recently, he has a show on HBO Max 
called 30 Coins that I have mentioned on here before. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, 30 Coins fucking rocks if you have not seen that show. Like this movie, it is incredibly sacrilegious and has kind of a badass tattooed bare knuckle priest who is taking on a Mm -hmm. giant satanic Illuminati group who is trying to gather all the 30 silver coins that Judas betrayed Jesus for. Because once they have all those coins, they will have ultimate fucking dominion over the earth or some shit. Yeah, the second season of that apparently is airing right now. I had no idea. I got to get caught up. And fucking Paul Giamatti is in the second season. Nice. Sure, I'm down. So anyway, yeah, Alex de la Iglesia has been working for a long time and has had a wild career. He has gone into pretty much every genre. I mean, I basically just talked about his genre shit. But he's done mainstream comedies. He's done mainstream dramas. Dude works. I think this sets up a good context for Day of the Beast. But skimming through his filmography, his works always delve with dark comedic elements in a way. like he's always doing like horror comedies or straight up horror. A few of his major works all have to do with like a satanic edge, whether it's the main part of the story or in the background. There's a lot of social criticism. There's a lot of political criticism and satire. There's a lot of satire of the church. I mean, yeah. the Catholic church is a fucking societal institution in Spain, right? Mm-hmm. So his movies are always very critical of all these powerful institutions that control a lot of society and how things run and people's views and all that. So he has kind of always been one of those outsider artists contextually for this movie you know andrew i know you weren't on this episode necessarily so a little bit of this i'll kind of reiterate for you but when we covered del toro's the devil's backbone we kind of talked a little bit about the roots of spanish cinema in general and kind of how things changed during the franco regime where there was like a huge crackdown on all artistic expression because that's what fucking happens when you have, you know, fascists running the government. And then there was this period after his death in 75, where there was suddenly this huge, explosive, every type of art was finally just popping out, and people were finally able to, like, creatively express themselves in different ways. The country was figuring out how to, like, finally be a democracy. And there was this weird reckoning with the entirety of Spanish society where there had always been this weird kind of, it's weird to say, but it's like a lot of what America's dealing with right now, where there's just like a lot of separation of families not seeing eye to eye on shit like they used to, and being like very divided, neighbors being divided, just a lot of that, oh shit, now we all still have to live together and try to move forward into like a new society, Uh and that's fucking tough to like have to all act like none of this ever happened, right? This movie is coming out of a lot of that. This movie is coming out of the whole La Movida era and all of that loosening of censorship and creative expression. You know, cinema was also kind of in a weird place where, like, obviously everything had been highly censored. Uh-huh. There were still some directors uh, like Luis Garcia Berlanga, who had done The Executioner and Placido and Welcome Mr. Marshall, who, like, still managed to slip a lot of subversive shit into his movies. And there were obviously people like Louis Bunuel who just said, fuck it, and he left and just, you know, directed abroad. So, you know, his stuff like Viridiana and Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie was 
very blatant about criticizing Spain and the government and the church and just all that shit, right? So now this is very post all that era where the Spanish cinema as a whole is trying to figure out how do we move forward. There was very much a push to like, we need to be serious. We need to make serious art that people really care about that's important. Mm. That just meant that they were chugging out a lot of really fucking boring movies, right? Yes. Yeah. Meanwhile, Spanish television was basically like all the fucking commercials on RoboCop. (laughs) Spanish television was the most maximalist right-wing hellscape bullshit of insanely trite talk shows weirdly exploitative bullshit and just so much sex and violence and it was kind of in weird contrast how fucking pious the government and the church were as a whole and how much they cracked down on art yet tv was this fucking gross weird you know hellscape again they didn't think it was art did they no was that was that what the case they just dismissed it a lot of it feels like the last few years i mean think about just how fucking loud and obnoxious and tacky so much of the just big guns fuck you trump 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 so classy like i'm gonna be loud and obnoxious talk shows reality tv shows just lots of weird trite content on tv Mm -hmm. yeah it feels very familiar like reading up on a lot of this was like oh we seem to be stuck in kind of this weird situation now here in this modern era so movies were trying to figure out where their fucking place was and there was a whole group of people like de la iglesia like pedro motobar right very I want to express the things that I haven't been able to get off my chest. I want to like be true to who I am. Like Pedro Motivar is a huge figure in queer cinema as a whole. You know, so like they believed that genre could really be embraced while still making thoughtful and artistic cinema. And they pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable. They pushed the boundaries of taste. They pushed the boundaries of how explicit you could be with content. But they were fully embracing a lot of the populist, maximalist genre craziness and just fantastic cinema in a way that the rest of the industry was not doing. But they were fucking knocking it out of the park and they were super successful in doing what they were doing. And like I mentioned earlier, this movie that we're talking about today, The Day of the Beast, was one of the biggest fucking movies in Spain in the 90s. And it was one of the biggest financial hits. It was a massive award winner at the Goyas the year that it came out, and it really was this big breakthrough thing that inspired all these other people to get into directing and movie making, because it was just such a weird punk rock, gut punch, dick kick to the system that hadn't happened yet to that point. So this just really blew the doors off in so many ways. I saw it was marketed on purpose as a satanic comedy. Oh, yeah. Nice. And in some parts, marketed also as a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, they were absolutely <laughs> aiming to be provocative. And that's a lot of, Andrew, why we thought to invite you on this one, thought you would enjoy this, because it's very much like what we talked about with you last time, where so much of Italian exploitation at that time was just, let's push fucking boundaries. Let's push yeah. people's buttons. Let's provoke for the sake of provoking And let's push and create outsider art because we can. You know, it was just a lot of that type of expression. You know, this movie specifically, 
plays so much on just how fucking aimless and weird and Ouroboros up its own ass the Franco regime was by the end and how so much of the time it was just chasing nonsense. And again, it feels very familiar. It feels very much like we're fucking still talking about fucking pizza parlors, trafficking <laughs> children and all that kind yeah. of shit. It's like, it's a pizza parlor. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> There's nothing going on there. Yeah, they're just playing ping pong. <laughs> yeah, it's weird yeah. shit. Like, we're chasing our own tail and looking for the fucking Antichrist and everything, and yet we're ignoring all these actual problems right under our nose. A lot of the reaction of, I know how to fix society. I know how to like make everything better. Let's crack down on the most fucking unfortunate in need of help group possible the homeless fuck them uh. specifically all the you know issues that we have in society it's their fault let's not try to actually fix any of the roots of that problem let's just get rid of them right yeah, like that's yeah. another weird thing that this is dealing with you know and the irony of the very end of the movie and where the two guys end up at the end and like you know okay well how many times has wild shit like this happened with other people that you just kind of walk past every day and don't think anything of? Right? Yeah, yeah. How many stories like that are just going by the wayside? You know, so it's interesting that there's like, so many layers to this movie, but also that it really struck a chord. With all that said, we kind of need to do that setup to contextualize, but also into the reason why we wanted to invite you on for this movie. You and I were talking, Andrew, and again, peek behind the curtain, listeners. This was very short notice. Andrew agreed to do it. Thank you so much. But because of that, you sat down and watched this movie literally before we sat down recording. So I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but with you being our guest, we like to, the first thoughts about the movie itself, what did you think about it? Like, did you like it? What worked for you? What are your thoughts and reactions to it just in general? I mean, I really liked it. It was a lot of fun. It was very interesting. I enjoyed the black comedy, especially, am I good to just like spoil things? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Horror newbies, this is a very digestible. It's an adult movie. Don't watch it with children. Obviously, someone does hang dong in it. But yeah, yeah. It's not a scary movie. It's if anything, it's a black yeah. comedy. I loved it. I almost loved how kind of pointless it kind of was too. Because at the end, the priest doesn't even stop the Antichrist from being born. It's like he never had to do any of the stuff that he did anyways. Because those guys killed it anyways. The people who were just killing the homeless people, they were going to be there anyways. And they kill the couple and the baby, I guess. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, what was the yeah. point of all this? Exactly. It feels that much more of a like quixotic, weird, roundabout <laughs> kind of thing. Because, yeah, it just turns out this was all for nothing. Yeah. This was going to end up this way regardless. I always like, too, when you have these kind of stories where you're never 100% sure whether you actually buy what is going on. And whether the truth is what it seems to be on the surface uh, or not, or if this is all delusional. Yeah, was the protagonist just crazy? Or if they're like accidentally taking fucking LSD. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> how often do we kind of blow aside, again, Pizzagate shit, right? Like yeah. how often do we blow aside number theories and like dates and Nostradamus and all this bullshit? But how often does it like actually end up coming true too, right? Yeah. <laughs> to the point where this movie even makes almost in a self-aware way has the, the priest break into that talk about Nostradamus and all of his predictions and the priest is trying to like get help that way. And the movie's almost taking the piss out of that too, yeah. but in a very self-aware yeah. way. To your point, Andrew, of like it almost all feeling pointless. I feel like this movie would make for a fantastic, very loose, if not inspired remake 
for a It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode. <laughs> replace the priest with Cricket. Yes. And then replace the metalhead and the fake occult fraudster TV guy with Charlie and have Charlie be like your math savant who like thinks he figured it out because he, he's an idiot in the show, but like he has these savant moments. And then you have Mac, who's the hyper religious, but like problematically religious one of the group. And then you have the former priest who's a homeless person, Cricket. And it's the three of them teaming up thinking they need to go stop the Antichrist. This whole movie and everything that's happening through it felt like a fucking It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode, except (laughs) we're actually seeing the consequences of their actions. Yes. yeah. That whole scene where they break into his apartment, tie him up, knock out his girlfriend. All of that shit was so fucking funny, but it was so much. You guys are just burying the hole deeper and deeper and deeper as you go. And here's the thing that I appreciate, because this was my hang up on our last episode, Aaron, with The Last Winter. I'm okay with a movie being cheeky about whether what we're seeing is real or not, but everything in context, and it has to do a good job of earning that ambiguity, and I didn't think The Last Winter did. In contrast, that I think The Day of the Beast does a phenomenal job of that. I think you could either take it as literal, all this is actually happening, or you could take it as these three idiots have just convinced themselves that this is what's happening. They all took LSD, had the same trip, and convinced each other that what they saw was real, and this is the consequences of their actions, or maybe it's somewhere in the middle. I think this movie has earned its ambiguous ending, and the thing I really appreciate on the Wikipedia article even, because if you like go and read through the plot synopsis, It's just literal with everything, the plot synopsis, but it doesn't do the actual movie justice of what's actually shown on screen. Because you're right, Andrew, if the devil really was one of those four or five jackass guys who was going around killing people and spray painting, like, keep Madrid. uh, Clean up Madrid. Clean up Madrid, basically make America great again. If one of them really was the devil or those four themselves represent the devil, why would the devil then kill the Antichrist? That makes no sense. Or maybe the devil just is so evil that kind of like God works in mysterious ways. The devil works in evil, mysterious ways. We don't know. I like that the movie never answers that question of did they actually save the world or were they all just idiots the whole way through? And I mean, at the end of the day, they at least did the good of ridding the city of those goons that were going around killing innocent people. Yeah. Like at least they did that, even if it wasn't a very roundabout, (laughs) fucked up way. Hell yeah. And the other reason why we invite you on this one is because this movie's just metal as fuck. Like, yes. it is very much. It is. <laughs> throw the horns up. Fuck Christmas. Yeah. We're going to go, like, full fucking ministry and death con dose on this motherfucker. And, yeah, let's just embrace being evil during the holiday, which is all the fun that you want out of a Christmas movie. Yes, yeah. And every character is just a little fucked in the head, even the innocent yeah. ones. Yeah. So as far as beginnings of this go, like I said, I I like how quixotic the whole thing feels. You know, Father Angel feels very much like Don Quixote, like he's convinced, you know, I know what I'm doing, going after this thing, I'm on this quest, will you join me? And he's very much just kind of gathering his goons with him. And I love that it's just a fat, druggy metalhead and a fake TV (laughs) psychic, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a great little trio. Yeah. And my only two minor gripes of the movie are, I wish we saw more scenes of the priest being an asshole, thinking if he sins enough, it'll get Satan's attention. Yes. Yeah. And I wish we got more scenes of the three of them actually in person together, just being fuck ups. (laughs) Yeah. I thought all of that was so funny and entertaining yeah so i guess we haven't really like laid out the premise exactly so 
This is set on Christmas Eve. A priest has convinced himself that he has deciphered Revelation and that it is this giant numerical code that gives the exact date of when the Antichrist will be born, which is that Christmas Eve. And so his whole plan is, I'm going to go commit as much sin as possible and be as evil as I can to like get near the devil and win his favor, and then I'm going to kill the Antichrist when he's born and save the world. And uh, yeah, like we said, he's the most sweethearted priest, an innocent little boy who doesn't know anything about the world, goes into the big city, and what does he do to like start being evil and committing crime? He like steals a homeless guy's coins out of his cup. <laughs> You know, he tells a guy who's, like, dying in a car accident, fuck you, you're going to hell, and, like, takes his wallet. He's just committing, like, the most petty 13-year-old boy crimes. Yes, he's definitely going edgelord mode. Yes. Yeah. Just trying to figure out what is actually bad. What do I need to do that's not good? I love when he goes into the record shop, because he, like, sees a fucking album cover that's got demon shit on it in the window, and uh, meets Jose Maria our metalhead who's running the shop and get some good recommendations from him. Just their immediate bond of, okay, I, yeah, I dig this fucking weird priest who's listening to metal and coming and asking about devil shit and just <laughs> father on hell's immediate. Yes, son, you're great in my book. Like just no judgment. Emilia is like, you're all right. Thank you for your help. I appreciate it. No judgment of you need to get your life straight, son. None of that. Yeah. I just, I love that, like, they immediately kind of have this weird connection. It's great. That scene in the record store, I've been in a record store that looks exactly like that, oh, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. A couple of them, yeah. Which, by the way, I love the list of the bands that Jose Maria gives him, because it's like, you know, Ministry, Iron Maiden. I love the very specific detail of Hase Dese, ACDC. Oh, huh. I didn't catch that. <laughs> but I love that it's like spelled out on the list. Hase Dese. <laughs> yeah, I didn't catch that. And so the two of them basically go back to the boarding house where Jose Maria lives with his mom who runs the place. Um, so we meet his super overbearing mother who is fucking hilarious as she's like slaughtering all these rabbits with her bare hands yes. for dinner. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't it introduce us to her with her, like, cutting the head off a rabbit? Basically. Yes, yeah, it does. That was definitely real, too. Yeah, definitely real yeah, rabbit. it looked real. Yeah. You meet his dad, who apparently was just, like, IRL, a dude from the neighborhood that they were like, yo, come play this role. And he was, like, willing to just walk around naked? Uh, apparently so. Dicking yeah. balls out, yeah. The actress, Torelle Pavez, who plays the mom, she was like, you know what? It was kind of freeing to see this guy who was just, so open and you know willing to perform and she was like i i just felt really creatively inspired to like really <laughs> let loose with my performance after seeing just how like carefree he was so yeah we meet them we meet hot naive innocent girl that helps the mom run the boarding house that uh jose maria kind of has a crush on oh that poor sweet girl what happens to her oh, yeah like later on oh, lord so they like go off on their quest to try and track down where the Antichrist will be born, because they know it's happening on Christmas Eve, just they don't know the where, right? Yeah. They end up connecting with a TV psychic named Professor Kevin, who has a talk show where he 
tells people's bullshit futures and stuff. His talk show introduction. Did, did you guys get Miss Cleo vibes? Oh, totally. Oh, big, time. Vibes big time Miss Cleo, yeah. From the 90s? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. If you've ever seen any of the Miss Cleo infomercials from the 90s, it's very much that, but in Spain. So he then becomes the next link in the chain of, okay, how are we going to figure this out? So they, of course, go to his apartment break in and tie him up and basically you're like okay you're gonna tell us how to summon the devil and so they do the ritual that all goes sideways of course because they have to have virgin blood and well his girlfriend's not actually a virgin i love the moment where he's like are you sure (laughs) the guy that plays cabinet is just like yeah man yeah i'm pretty sure of course (laughs) so you know they go about getting all this together uh they carve up his floor what was the ingredient that they needed but they just went ahead and substituted lsd with it aminata muscaria the mushroom oh i got acid that's like mushrooms yeah <laughs> and I love the scene where you see them putting this all together because it's literally just well, here's a squirt of blood, here's some liquor, here's some tabs of acid just thrown in. A lot of acid. <laughs> a lot of acid. A lot of acid. Yeah. And then yeah. yeah, just bless some holy water, dunk that shit in, and let's all drink. Yeah, so they drink someone's blood. That's not healthy in any way, shape, or form. Well, she's virgin, so... I mean, it's probably healthier than taking all that acid. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. No, I was horrified watching them consume that. Especially because you know, for sure, the priest has never done that acid at all. And he takes the biggest dose. And, like, maybe the TV psychic. (laughs) And he takes the... Yeah. And that kind of leads you into, like... Well, this all could be in their heads now, like yeah. from yeah. here on out. Yeah, this is where it fully becomes the like Jacob's ladder moment of like, okay, what what are we seeing from this point on? Is anything from this point on even going to be actually occurring too? Yeah. Yeah. So, they go off on their quests together. Eventually, they figure out where the antichrist will be born. They go there and like you said, there is this final confrontation where They come face to face with the devil, question mark? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. By the way, that devil form rad as fuck. was pretty fucking great from like a 90s standpoint. Yeah. Up to that point, the film was very low budget, it seemed like. I mean, aside from yes. the, the scene where they're outside, uh, like climbing on the side of the building. Yeah. And I was not sure we were going to get some cool special effects. And we definitely did. That devil was pretty cool. And it fucking delivers to, if you see any of the behind the scenes stuff, the actor playing the devil, Satan, is an actor who does not have legs. So he is legitimately on stilts in this full body costume. Wow. And it's pretty fucking rad to see. This movie was also notable for being one of the first Spanish movies, if not the first Spanish movie to actually do like chroma key blue screen green screen effects like that was just not a thing that spanish movies dipped into that was very interesting american so i really appreciate how practical this movie tries to remain and normally when something is being super practical but they have to use like a green screen like that it can be a little jarring but i loved that old effect because it almost even reminded me of Ghostbusters when shit yeah. starts hitting the fan you know it's just an effect but the sky becoming like that eerie and that otherworldly but it's done in that kind of cheese way of you know it's not real as a viewer but it works against that costume of the devil that is uh-huh. practical 
as he's holding him by the throat over the side of the building like loved all that imagery so much yeah yeah also also in the vein of it being like low budget and stuff i really loved the part where the mom falls down the stairwell (laughs) and the way they cut it and stuff where she just keeps hitting the railing i was like that was good because you know they only had to drop the actress just a little bit or the stuntman i would assume yeah speaking of stuntman there was another scene where uh when the father's getting his ass kicked in the metal club and you can see the terrible fake wig on the stunt man. I don't know if yeah. you guys saw that, but it was uh, it was pretty comical. But yeah. I love the scene where she falls down the stairwell because they managed to make it seem like she fell really far while also saving a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by being creative with how they cut it. Yeah. The action in all of his movies in general is very heightened. It's very over the top and ridiculous and really kind of pushing the edge of credulity in very much the like sideshow Bob steps on the rake kind of way where like it just kind of goes a little bit too far and you're kind of like, is this a little bit too much? But then it goes just far enough that you're like, okay, that's kind of funny. Yeah, well, yeah, it was funny yeah, because it was so comical. But almost more brutal than if she would have yeah. just fallen straight just all the way down fallen, and like, slapped one story, the ground. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, and then and then her final like death is just so indignant. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like an atomic wedgie. Yeah, yeah. And the actress thought it was all fucking hilarious. Apparently, she had a blast with this. So she is real deal Spanish cinema acting legend who like had this massive career way back in the fifties. Yeah, she was in stuff like Novio a la Vista, which was a Louis Garcia Berlanga movie. But then she totally comes back way later in life with this movie and has like a whole second win to her career. And she works with De La Iglesia on a lot of his other movies. She's in 800 Bullets and The Last Circus and Witching and Bitching. She like loves working with him, apparently. You love to see it. You love to see it because yeah. I, I love to see it when an actor like pays their dues and they're like, fuck it. I'm going to do the fun movies. Oh, yeah, totally. And they find someone they like to work with. Yeah. And I'm going to go all in because yeah. I, I really love to see that when you see a guy who uses like the same actors all the time and you can tell that even behind the scenes, it's good, you know? Yeah. So on that note, speaking of the rest of the cast, so Father on Hell was played by Alex Angulo. One thing that we notice, I mean, uh, the more you look into like Spanish cinema as a whole, doesn't matter what genre, everybody works with everybody. That's kind of the great thing about the industry being so small is everybody works with everybody. So there's a lot of crossover happening. Angulo's in Almodovar's Live Flesh. He is in Axial Mutante, like I mentioned earlier. He's in Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. He's worked with kind of all of these guys, right? He unfortunately died in a car accident in 2014, so he was not available for like any of the new documentaries about this movie or interviewed or anything. Because I don't think I mentioned earlier, but Severin put out a like really nice 4K restoration of this a year or so ago, and they put out tons of behind the scenes shit for this movie. But the actor who I was really getting to, the guy that plays Jose Maria, the metalhead. Santiago Segura, you guys have definitely seen him in other stuff before. He looked familiar. Not only is he best friends with Alex de la Iglesia, he's also really good friends with Guillermo del Toro. So he's in Axiom Mutante and Perdita Durango, but he's in like a whole weird like action cop comedy series that he directed called the Torrente series. 
He's in Blade 2. He's the goofy balding guy with the feather boa in the club. Oh, that's him? Uh Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in Beyond Reanimator. He's in both of the Hellboy movies. He's in fucking Jack and Chill with Adam Sandler. (laughs) Why not? Yeah. He's in The Strain, the Del Toro vampire show that was on FX. So he's been in a ton of stuff. He had big Bray Wyatt energy in this movie in some scenes. Oh, yeah. And this was a big breakout performance for him. He had done a little bit of acting before this. He actually used to go on quiz shows to like win money to then fund his short films that he made. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. He was just buds with Dilla Iglesia and just kind of around, right? Mm-hmm. They originally offered this role to Javier Bardem. And he turned it down. Ooh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, that could have been, like, super interesting. The producer, Andres Vincent Gomez, he suggested Segura. He's like, why don't you just get your fucking weirdo friend who's perfect (laughs) for this role, even though he had, like, never really done any acting. I mean, he knocks out of the park. Oh, yeah. He won a Goya Award for, like, Best New Performer of the Year for this role. And this character was so popular in Spanish pop culture that he actually reprises this character in a, like, Canal Plus pay-per-view commercial in 1999, years later. He also does a lot of Spanish voice dubbing for American movies. Like, he's the John Goodman Sully voice in Monsters, Inc., And he also dubbed Will Ferrell in Step Brothers. Oh, nice. So there's just weird shit like that that he's kind of all over the place. And he writes and directs a ton of stuff. Again, there's a whole giant section of Netflix that's just tons of Spanish language shit that you don't see in your fucking algorithm unless you go looking for it. But there's so much shit that's out there that you wouldn't know about otherwise. Well, to tie it all back to like the cast and what you said earlier, Andrew, with actors, like you said, paying their dues, saying, like, fuck it, I want to go to the fun movie. But also, even with the, new, the actors coming on and breaking out like him, and I don't know, it's just maybe it's the fact that I'm now watching more movies since we started doing this show, Aaron. I just could tell when people seem like they're generally having a good time oh, while yeah. making a movie, and everyone seemed like they were having fun making this movie, and, and that energy kind of comes through. It was a miserable shoot, apparently. Oh, okay. But it was one of those things where, like, everybody believed in the project, and everybody was given their best. They all believed in what they were fucking doing. They knew that they were also like totally getting away with some wild shit that like they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So everybody was really game, but it was apparently just like a fucking miserable shoot because it was all nights. They literally shot during December to take advantage of the fact that Madrid was all done Christmas. up for Christmas already. Oh, yeah. There were already tons of crowds of people out and about. So they're filming in super freezing temperatures. It was raining constantly. There was a ton of construction they had to deal with. So it was just miserable from a logistics standpoint. I do like how Christmas, it's very featured in this movie, but it's not never necessarily brought attention to. It's just more of an aspect of what's going on around yeah. them rather than an outright Christmas movie. Now, granted, I say that. And again, this is one of those moments where like this movie taking the piss out of Christmas when the cops start shooting at them and they shoot the, the wise men, men. <laughs> the three wise men thinking yeah. it's them. It's horrifying as an American because like we're so just used to mass shootings. Yeah, gun violence is yeah, a fucked up thing we live with. Well, well, mass shootings and police brutality and police not doing their jobs correctly. So there's elements of both in that scene, but it was kind of fucking funny 
to watch them just shoot the hell out of these innocent people dress up yeah. as the wise men. I also like the part where they bust into the lower apartment and the little girl's like, Santa's here. Yeah. And then they just <laughs> punch out the dad. Yeah, what if Santa showed up and was a balding metalhead covered in tattoos with a shotgun who just punches out your fucking father? Yeah. Merry Christmas, kids. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that scene up, Andrew, because there's so many moments in this movie where someone just gets punched or elbowed in the face yeah. out of nowhere, and it's yes, always yeah. hilarious. Great shit. So, Kevin is played by Armando de Raza. So, this movie had a 300 million peseta budget. So that only translates to like $2.3 million, right? But it was a Spanish and Italian co-production. And once the Italians came on, they demanded that a couple of the cast members be Italian actors, right? Mm -hmm. So there were other people lined up like Jose Sancho or Jorge Perigoria to play this role, but they instead gave it to Armando de Raza. He was in like a bunch of Italian movies and TV stuff. He is on 30 Coins, and he's in Venezia Frenia, which I haven't checked that one out. That was Iglesias' 2021 Venice slasher movie. I think it's on Netflix. I have not seen him in much. Again, it's just one of those, holy shit, there's so much movie and TV stuff that I have never exposed myself to when I look at somebody's IMDb, and they're in a hundred fucking movies and TV shows, and none of it I'm familiar with. So, yeah, his role and then his girlfriend, Susanna, that character is played by Maria Grazia Cusinata. She, I have seen. She's in Il Postino and The Sopranos, and she's one of the Bond girls in The World Is Not Enough. So she's been in a couple of American things. I laugh so much because when they knock her out and then they like just put the cup right on her tits. <laughs> they're like preparing. Look, to be fucking crass and blue for a minute. It's pretty fucking funny watching her stomp around in her fucking heels running away from these guys yes. and just wig flopping, tits flopping, yeah. and just screaming bloody murder the entire fucking time. It's kind of fucking hilarious. So yeah, they knew what they were doing shooting that scene. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then as he's carrying her up the stairs and you can just hear the head bonk on every stair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Again, like always sunny in Philadelphia. These are just idiots. Yeah, exactly. And that's why a part of me does think I do want this to be literal because it'd be hilarious if these idiots were the ones who yes, did yeah. save the world. Yeah, really. Because uh, that's kind of like what we deserve. Last cast member I'll talk about real quick. Mina, the girl that lives you know, at the boarding house with the mom who uh, gets vampired, basically. She's played by Natalie Sasenya. She was in a lot of stuff with Segura. They had a lot of crossover on TV and shorts. And then she was in a show called La Casse of Vecina, which she's in 184 fucking episodes of that TV show that has been running since 2007 and is still currently running. So, like, man, good for fucking her for landing a steady gig like that. And it's a comedy, too. Yeah. I saw it was a comedy That's show. what she was known for, was doing comedy stuff. You know, so it was kind of wild that she was in this type of movie. But yeah, like we've seen with some other people that have come on previous episodes, oh, this person's been on some fucking random CBS show now for eight years? Good on them. That's a paycheck. <laughs> so yeah, this movie, they kind of approached the entire thing with as much sincerity as possible in regard to... All the Satanism stuff. They did a lot of research. So Della Iglesia and then the co-writer, 
Jorge Guerra Echevarria, they looked at a ton of shit for inspiration. They looked at the Witch's Hammer. Uh, they looked at a lot of Poe, a lot of Lovecraft. So they were kind of drawing from all these different things. And apparently, like, the entire devil summoning ritual and rites are all depicted, like, fairly accurately in the movie. And so there was definitely a little bit of superstition from the cast and the crew about, what are we doing? Are we getting away with something? (laughs) Like I mentioned earlier, Pedro Amodabar, he's buds with Alex de la Iglesia, and at the beginning, de la Iglesia, like, started as a comic book artist. And then he got into movies as an art director before making the jump to director. And he did this cheeky shit, which I love. He directed a short film titled Miranda's Assassinas in 1991, specifically just to get attention from the industry. So this was a super artsy, super expressionistic, black and white short film featuring a popular soda brand. In Spain, and it was Alex Angulo, who plays Father Angel, he goes into this bar, orders this soft drink, and it's like three minutes of him cracking open this can and pouring it in slow motion and drinking it and be like, ah. And then the rest of it is him murdering the fuck out of somebody that he's there at the bar to kill. (laughs) They made this short film. They then put on their own film festival for short films featuring soda brands his short film was the only entry and then of course he won the award for best short film at this short film festival about films about sodas so he specifically did this goofy stunt to get people's attention and it worked because fucking pedro motobar was like I like what you're doing. This is weird shit. I can vibe with that. So you think that whole scene then with the summoning ritual is he was like, no, I want to actually try and do a summoning ritual while we film. Well, no, not that as much as just he wants to be provocative. He wants to push buttons. Yeah, well, he wants to like for sure bring kind of a meta awareness as much as possible. And in some ways it worked. In the first five minutes, you get that yeah. because it's very almost omen exorcist-esque where like the priest walks in it's all the somber music and they're looking behind each other's shoulders to make sure no other priests are like clergy or any around they're whispering to each other and it's just like it is true the prophecy will we must do this together brother and then the fucking heavy cross squashes a priest with a crucifix (laughs) yeah Uh, Yeah. yeah, that shit's great it reminded me of the omen when the fucking cross lightning strikes and then impales the priest that was very similar so yeah there was like weird cheeky fun shit on set and kind of in this meta real world way because almodobar produced actual mutante his first movie and some other shorts that he did but then was like i don't know about producing day of the beast my guy like this is kind of weird and i'm a little bit superstitious so i'm gonna bow out on this one so yeah almodobar was just like i'm good i'm out i'll hop back with you later but they were like really into what they were doing they wanted everything to be as accurate as possible they apparently got some real life tv and talk show people involved in like all of the you know behind the scenes stuff there the story was originally conceived to be set in bobeo which is where de la iglesia is from originally for various reasons they decided to set it in madrid instead which that worked because there are Lots of very specific 
iconic pieces of architecture that are featured in this movie, like the entire apartment building that they end up hanging out on the outside of the Schweppes giant neon sign. Yeah. That's a famous building in downtown Madrid. I looked up pictures and like that is the sign too yeah. that wasn't made for the movie. It was that was an actual sign. And actually, so yes and no. <laughs> so that is the actual sign. They realize like, oh shoot, for various reasons, we can't actually shoot on the building, right? Yeah, no, not the advertising. I meant the sides. Yeah, yeah. So they realized they couldn't actually shoot on the building. Just the safety wasn't there. It wasn't practical. They reached out to fucking Schweppes. And Schweppes agreed to pay for a recreation of that sign for them to film this movie on. Nice. So it is the sign, but it's not the actual sign. Okay. So they're filming all of this on a warehouse back lot. And they're only like 25 feet above the ground, but they're still fucking 25 feet above the ground (laughs) hanging off this thing. And fucking Schweppes paid for all of it just because they were like, oh, yeah, free advertisement. Sure. Why not? Yeah, That was good advertising. That made me want a uh, ginger ale. Yeah. But yeah, the real sign is on top of the Edificio Carrion, which is a historic protected landmark building. It's kind of like Times Square and Piccadilly Circus in Madrid. I definitely got big Times Square vibes from it. Yeah, for sure. Same. Yeah. It almost even reminded me a little bit of that building that's on the Paul's Boutique album. Well, in the Flatiron building in New York as well, too. Just any of those wedge-shaped corner buildings. They are very, very, you know, specific. Calle Preciados, which is the big main huge shopping street that they were on. That is a big major location in Madrid. Was that where the police like shot the wise men? Yes. And again, all that was already decorated. So that's just free fucking production value when the entire city's already done up for Christmas. And then lastly, the Keo Towers at the gates of Europe. That was the first inclined skyscrapers. And they were still under construction when they filmed the movie. They they were finished the year after the movie came out. But Dela Glacy just liked the weird futuristic design and was like, oh, yeah, that's totally some weird New World Order shit that the devil would be you know, behind. Well, it really does. It felt like a very strange monument. Like, yeah, OK, I, I see what, where this movie's going with that. And granted, I'm assuming that once they get into the inside, it's actually just a set. But if it, if it was still... Under construction, that explains why all those scenes have heavy construction in the yeah. inside when they go up the side of the building. Again, just I didn't know taking that. Taking advantage of the free production value that's already there. Why not? And I really liked that this movie used that as the main climax set piece because I didn't know the Gate of Europe existed until this movie, and then I went and like looked it up and yeah. read about the history and all that. It's just one of those things that I've never been to Madrid, so I didn't know. And it's a super epic metal moment where they finally get there and you see Father Angel just walk up and he's like framed from behind with those towers kind of leaning in toward him. And he's just like spreading his hands like that moment's so fucking cool. So they originally planned to just shoot mostly on sets that they were going to build, right? Like they even like designed a lot of the sets. And had gone through all that work. And then they realized, like, no, it's going to be way more effective for the budget that we have to just film in real locations where we can. And again, they did it smart because they had to do very little set dressing for anything. Kevin's apartment, apparently, like, 90% of the shit that's in that apartment set is all what was just there when they (laughs) went there to film. (laughs) They didn't really have to, like, set decorate anything. They just had to put tape down the floor for where the cameras needed to go. 
I would have laughed so hard if those masks and all that were already there. They yeah, were just, just breaking. <laughs> Apparently, a lot of it was. They were just breaking nonsense that they were bringing in. But <laughs> they shot through December and then picked up again February. But again, it was just fucking miserable and cold and rainy the entire time. And they kept running into problems where there was construction holding things up. The entire ending of this movie got completely changed because of some of the roadblocks that they ran into with scheduling and budget and everything else. So the original ending was supposed to be this giant massive gathering of 5,000 satanic priests from all around the world gathering at the towers, and there were going to be piles of dead children and sacks piled up against the building, and Father on Hell was going to go and swear allegiance to Satan and do the old school thing of the priest having to kiss the devil's literal ass. Uh. And they were going to reveal that the devil's butt is just Father on Hell's face. So he ends up kissing himself through the devil's asshole. (laughs) And then he was going to execute the newborn. And it was one of those things where like, oh, shit, we're already going to be like stretching the budget. Dilla Glacier was also like, fuck, I don't know how long he's just going to take this. But the protagonist finally going through with all this, is it better to like change some of this up? So they literally got to the point where they ran out of time at that location. And the crew was like, we have to go. We got to pack everything up. Like, we have to leave. That's it. We're done. If you didn't get the ending. We got a hard out. Exactly. Right. Like, we got to go. Yeah. And he rewrote the fucking ending in just a couple of hours, apparently, and shot everything with just... Angulo, Labiano, the cinematographer, like they shot everything and finished everything. They also didn't have a screen usable prop infant. So it was just kind of one of those, oh, let's just kind of like hide that shit under some trash. Let's use a baby doll. We'll get away with it. It'll be fine. But it works, honestly, because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, with just all the ambiguity around. Did any of this actually happen? Yeah. Was this just these weird fascist assholes going around killing homeless people and they happen to murder this family and their infant? Is it just that simple or is it really we saved the fucking world? Like, I, I think that unfortunate circumstance during production where all this shit just went sideways and they had to rework the ending helps ultimately with the story in a way that if it was just that on the nose, I don't know that it would work as well. And I don't know that it would be. Remember it as fondly, honestly, if it didn't stick the landing the way that the final thing does. Yeah. From a visual standpoint, I kind of wish we saw the original ending, but I agree with you otherwise. I think from an actual storytelling standpoint, I like this more ambiguous ending. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because, yeah, was there even a baby there? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fun. Instead of having piles and piles of bodies and thousands of satanic occult people You've just got these people under like a piece of cardboard getting shot. Yeah, and you're right, though, because when they kick the cardboard aside, you don't really see anything but the adult bodies. You hear the baby crying, and that whole like visualization is kind of like a weird trip as it is, if we want to go back to the LSD angle, because they have the one guy who you can assume is the leader of these four or five fascist assholes, who it might be the devil. And you see all that stuff on the roof, and it feels very like end of Ghostbusters visuals and stuff. When they come back down after they've shot the family, you see that black goat just kind of run off screen. And then you have that final scene where like the guy is coming up behind him, and you see the outline of the devil yeah. like in the shadow. 
then he shoots him and then it just turns into the the guy the last remaining one of the yeah. group so how much of it is yeah. hallucination yeah yeah but then where it stays ambiguous is and granted you could just toss it up to it's a group hallucination they all convince themselves this is what they're seeing but like all three of them you assume see the same thing in the apartment with the he goat coming in and standing up on its hind legs and revealing its teeth and everything and the fact that they all share that same visual then you wonder like well you know is there something there but i don't think that's important it's fun to talk about and it's fun to like stew on and be ambiguous about but it's not what's important to the movie otherwise because then if you think about it too much again it goes back to like why would the devil shoot his own antichrist child yeah yeah speaking of the goat apparently the goat was a complete pain in the ass to work with. Oh, just, just like, like uh, witch, the witch right? goat as well. Yeah, it just sounds like goats are not fun to work with. Uh huh. Apparently, everybody's <laughs> like, "Oh, I have a trained goat." No, you don't. <laughs> goats can't be trained. That's the lesson here: is goats just can't be trained. It wouldn't stand on command. It wouldn't turn to the camera on command. It broke loose once or twice <laughs> and like caused chaos on the set. <laughs> Apparently, like Dilla Glacier was literally running down the hallway of this apartment trying to get into the bathroom and shut the door, and it was just chasing after him. So it w- was Satan. Basically, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. They ended up literally just letting the goat off of its leash and just letting it wander around the apartment. And they literally just followed the fucking goat around for like an hour. Before they finally got what they needed for those handful of shots. God, how much film was wasted on that fucking goat? Yeah, really. I think visually, this movie looks pretty great. Flavio Martinez Labiano was the cinematographer for this. He would also do Perdita Durango, which I also think looks visually like really fucking great. He would also do Ernest Dickerson's Bones. Time Crimes, he did a lot of the Juan Colette, Sarah, Liam Neeson action joints from the last decade or so. And then he's like a fucking second unit DP on Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and Exodus Gods and Kings, the like Ridley Scott White People Moses movie. Oh boy. <laughs> so like he's been on a lot of big Hollywood stuff in the last couple of years. The Shallows, Jungle Cruise from Disney. Oh, nice. So again, it's just wild that this really straight up journeyman works his ass off DP started here, right? I agree with you. It looked nice for it being lower budget and they tried to be practical when they could. And there were moments during the movie where I forgot it was a 90s movie. Like I knew it wasn't a modern movie by any sense, but it felt timeless in certain scenes. It really doesn't feel dated. It does. No. You really do just kind of chalk the fashion and that kind of stuff up to just, it's just Spain, right? Yeah. The cars, the buildings, you just really chalk all of it up to like, that's Europe. And you don't really think about it that much. The most dated thing is like no cell phones, no cell phones smartphones, yeah. and they use a yeah, payphone yeah. at one point, and that's really I, I also appreciated the use of the almost deep fried effect that they had in a lot of the scenes where I kind of wonder if it was to amp up the fact that they're tripping on acid. Yeah. Definitely yeah. during the ritual scene and during the scene where he sees Satan and the metalhead dies. Yeah, the optical composite definitely looks a little bit sketchy, but it does lend this... uh, Again, my mind goes to like, yes, I know the effect doesn't 100% work. It's not clean, Mm -hmm. but I like that. I like that because it reminds me a lot of, again, all the fucking Italian shit that I love from Argento and Fulci, where you see the seams and you know you're looking at an effect 
but you still enjoy it. And there's still something charming about it in a way that you see CGI stuff now and your eyes just kind of glaze over. Mm. It just kind of passes over you in a way that like you just don't think about. And in this, at least, it's how they do that. That looks very odd in this specific moment. What's happening right here? What am I looking at? So I appreciate that a little bit more. Even the full Satan reveal is like, this isn't CGI. I think this is practical, but I'm not sure. But in a good way. The first time I saw this movie, I thought it was claymation. Yeah. I legitimately thought that like Satan Goatman was claymation. Yeah, I thought it was like Clash of the Titans type uh-huh. yeah like stop motion claymation <laughs> yeah it wasn't until i got the 4k and like watched the behind the scenes that i saw oh no this was legitimately a dude in this giant costume and all this practical makeup which is wild that they like went that far for this movie yeah for that one scene especially and again it's a rad looking satan it's definitely, memorable with how definitely. little it actually is in oh, yeah. the movie it's really really cool another thing that's aged well is the soundtrack for this movie because again getting this many for at the time big bands together and putting out this kind of soundtrack for this movie that's a logistic nightmare now in terms of rights because mm. this movie includes ministry and pantera fucking sugar ray is all this soundtrack <laughs> And fucking Defcon Dose, which I mentioned a second ago, they are the Satanica band that you see in the movie. That main song, Day of the Beast, that he plays in the record shop is them. Which I loved how that whole plot point was a red herring, but again, unlike what I thought with The Last Winter, I thought this movie executed that as a yeah, nice yeah. red herring. When they like burn that homeless guy and he takes a shirt and he's wearing the band shirt, and it's yeah. just, why would they do this to one of his yeah. followers? Well, there's that. There's, of course, the like Nostradamus stuff, and that all ends up being like a dead end. It yep. is a lot of yeah. these. We're going to all the obvious answers, and none of this ends up getting us anywhere. Because probably none of this is real, right? Yeah. It's interesting that, like you said, it earns those red herrings, at least, because the entire movie is about trying to figure out the where. We got to get to the point. We got to go from point A to point B. And it's just running into, like, all the roadblocks in between. By the way, that music that plays when he first gets to the city and he's going around and starting to commit the sins was rad. I loved whatever track that was. The uh, other fun thing is when they burn the note in the ritual and then he like spells out you know esto no es un juego which is this isn't a game that's the fucking chorus to the theme song for action mutante which is a fucking rad as hell proto new metal rap rock group a few years before that was really codified as a thing they very much feel like early rage against the machine if you listen to their stuff. But their theme song for Action Mutante is great, by the way. Y'all should both check it out. Hey! 
<laughs> Love it. Fun shit. Great 90s vibes. One last thing I wanted to just wrap back all the way to the setup, Aaron, where you're talking about like what was going on in Spain, especially with the filmmakers and everything. The one thing that was the closest to horror for me, at least personally, in this movie were those scenes where like you came across a crime scene and they had the spray paint that they spray yeah. painted by the dead bodies. Clean up Madrid. Yeah, clean up Madrid. And they like literally light the homeless guy on fire and you see the whole process. And they all look like upper class guys too doing it. I felt like watching that now, going back to what you said earlier, how we're kind of living through what they went through now in the U.S., I'll just I kept in my mind going back to just replace those words with MAGA. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of weird echoes. A lot of weird echoes. And I, I felt like if I had watched this movie earlier, especially pre 9-11, I wouldn't have been able to relate to that in any way, shape or form. That would have just been so beyond me. It's like, oh, that's just something that happened in Spain. I, I can't yeah. relate to that. But now in 2023, almost 2024 America, like. That was kind of haunting reflection to look at this movie. That was came out in 1995. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's wild shit. So that was my last point I wanted to make. So ultimately, this film was selected for the Venice Film Festival, which is wild to consider, but obviously met with mixed reactions that were rather condescending because audiences weren't sure how to react to like the grotesque satire and the fantastic because this is not what they were used to out of spanish cinema at this point right horror movies always getting a bad rap yeah. for no reason oh yeah for being ahead of the times keep in mind too this is italy so the catholic church is also very much an institution there as well they didn't get the humor they didn't get the violence like there was just something that did not fucking connect with audiences at venice venice is already a weird film festival to begin with it kind of always has been there's just something about that festival. It, it doesn't translate to like what mainstream reactions are, right? The best that they could say was, oh, well, the visual effects were nice. But it was always kind of apparently in this paternal, like, well, you tried kind of way. You know, there was just something about like, oh, you kids making your movies. Go back to Spain. You know, this isn't real cinema. And it's kind of ironic because De La Iglesia's movie, The Last Circus, years later, would go on to win Best Screenplay and Director at Venice in 2011 so talk about a fucking full circle he's made career-wise with that festival the spanish critics at sitches were also pretty openly hostile toward this film because again it's critical of the government it's critical of the church it's very much satire on the entirety of spanish culture and where people at that point were during that time so the creators and the stars got a lot of flack but The uh, producer chose to premiere the film in Madrid in October at a small theater that was directly across from a larger, more mainstream theater that was showing Apollo 13. So there was like a lot of buzz that happened because lines were going down the block to see Day of the Beast, but not Apollo 13. Who the fuck cares about Apollo 13 in Spain, right? (laughs) Why would any Spaniard want to see Apollo 13? That has nothing to do with anything, right? But everybody wanted to see this. And so this movie was a massive hit. The buzz from the festivals, kind of like, oh, this movie is provocative. This movie is pushing buttons. This movie pissed off a lot of people. That buzz is working. It always does. Oh, yeah. Totally. It, it always helps it. Yeah. The film ended up being a massive success for Spain, right? It grossed $4.7 million, which was huge for Spain. Um, it was nominated for 14 Goya Awards, which is their Academy Awards. 
It won special effects, makeup and hair, sound, art direction, and new breakout actor. And Dela Iglesia won the Goya for best director. Like he beat Pedro Almodovar, who had been kind of his older brother mentor in the industry up to this point. Other fun connection to, again, Spanish cinema, going back to Devil's Backbone and just, again, everybody works with everybody. The film that Omotobar was nominated for this year at the Goyas, The Flower of My Secret, stars Marissa Paredes, who was one of the leads in Devil's Backbone. And then the Best Picture winner that year, Nobody Will Speak of Us When We're Dead, stars Federica Lupi, who's the other lead in Devil's Backbone just a few years later. After this, De La Iglesia sold the rights to a U.S. remake of this movie with the condition that he himself directed. So again, another fun connection to Dick Moss doing the same exact shit. I want to direct the remake myself. And it's wild the shit that he turned down. He turned down Alien Resurrection, which ended up going to Jean-Pierre Jeannot, uh, who was basically the same level of weirdo, provocateur, auteur, but right across the border in France at the same time. Uh, That basketball scene always cracks me up in that fucking movie. Love it. (laughs) Yeah. He was also offered to direct a feature movie of the video game Doom. Okay. He was also offered the Crow Salvation, all of which he turned down. What? Okay. And then, yeah, like I said, he's gone on to have a wild, successful career. He was the president of the Spanish Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences from 09 to 11. He has a production company right now with his wife, who is super fucking hot. And they, like, have turned out all kinds of stuff. One of the movies that they just produced was the highest viewed non-English film in the history of Amazon Prime. They're making big shit, right? Good on him. Yeah, he's still working, man. And like I said, 30 Coins is one of his more recent things. Season two is out now. I will fucking tell everybody, like, check that shit out. I've been meaning to watch it. Oh, yeah. If you love weird shit and practical effects and gore and just sacrilege and ridiculous shit, that show is a blast. So that is Day of the Beast. This was a fun metal as fuck christmas with the devil kind of movie but it's also like a good eat your foreign art horror movie comedy vegetables kind of thing as well too so yeah i'm glad you guys enjoyed this movie i'm glad we're exposing more people to this movie because i definitely think again as horror fans we tend to fixate on a lot of the same stuff right but for sure yeah finding those things on the edges finding all those little off the beaten path things or finding things that just we're not exposed to here in America and experiencing that yourself, getting other people to experience it, I think is important for like, you know, not just the horror genre specifically, but cinema as a whole, you know, just you need to expose yourself to more than what's just on fucking Netflix right now. Yeah. I never would have seen this movie if you guys hadn't hit me up to talk about it. And I'm fucking glad I saw it because it was fun. I had never seen it without Aaron. And dude, I'm telling you, check out his other shit. Check out 30 Coins. Check out Perdita Durango specifically. I think you will vibe with the rest of his shit too because it is all just ludicrous. It's all the most sensational, absurd, gory and ridiculous. It's nuts. He's a very singular voice in horror and I can't really think of the closest I can think of and again not even an American the closest analog I can think of at least now is James Wan where he's making fucking Aquaman movies very big mainstream big budget crowd pleaser shit 
But then he's also producing malignant. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, he's producing just bananas, goofy-ass horse shit at the same time. He's definitely a very interesting voice that I think everybody should definitely dig into a little bit more. I'll definitely be digging. Awesome. Hell yeah. Thank you once again, Andrew, for coming on, especially on such short notice. Yes, absolutely. Uh, helped make our uh, Christmas episode this year a little bit more special. Hopefully your audience enjoyed our talk about this. I didn't realize how much of an impact this movie had on Spanish cinema. Yeah. But it is a delightful movie. Gather some friends. Put it on for this Christmas. Watch an old guy hang dong. It's definitely fun. Watch a <laughs> Satanist run around with a shotgun blasting it into the air. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Unlimited ammo on that shotgun, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Very 90s. Just as you expect. That was like the one moment that really reminded me that this was a 90s movie. Yes, absolutely. The unlimited ammo. The only thing it was also missing to was every car that gets shot or like barely bumps the bumper explodes in a fireball. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, cool. Andrew, what stuff do you want to share social-wise with the audience that they can check out? Uh, Well, you can find me pretty much anywhere. Fritz Bone Lord. That's my Instagram handle. That's my Twitter handle now. I don't really use Twitter that or X. I don't really use Twitter that much but i mean if you want to reach out on any of them just look up fritz bone lord that's my youtube channel too i've been uploading our at dawn they sleep sessions there but it's also on my buddy's channel because he had a campaign for a little bit called children of the night and that's the name of that youtube channel but i'll I'll send you the links for obscene and for at dawn they sleep to put in the show notes and stuff Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Check those out. Yeah. Yeah. Check out Crypt and Ghosters if you haven't already. Yeah. Uh, audience, uh, listeners, you should know Shelby Scott's show, Scary to Sleep by Now. She's been on a few of our episodes too. So again, obscene. All four parts are on that show, Scary to Sleep. So check out that podcast. But yeah, again, we'll have that all in the show notes. So I guess, Aaron, uh, do you want to lead us out? Hell yeah. So once again, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres. As always, you can find us on social media at Watch If You Dare, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Blue Sky, question mark. Yeah, we're on there. So yeah, check us out there. Please follow us on whatever podcatcher you use, because guess what? We're on every single one of those as well. Um, And part of the reason that we are so widely available is because we specifically want to keep this show ad free and on every platform. And in order to do that, we need you guys to help support us. So that's where we're going to point you to our Patreon at patreon.com slash watch if you dare. It's just five bucks a month. Only five bucks. We are constantly putting out tons of bonus content, including commentary tracks and list discussions and. All kinds of fun shit. Um, We're going to be doing some fun stuff in the new year as well. Um, We have a fun Christmas movie that we just threw out. So yeah, check us out there. That helps pay for a lot of the costs of our show, including hosting and Riverside and childcare and just all these things. So yeah, definitely support us as you can there. We greatly appreciate it. Please rate, review, and subscribe and all the other places. Thank you very much. Happy holidays to everybody, you motherfuckers. It's been a great year. Uh, We are very thankful for everyone who has been listening. I feel like we have done a lot of fun movies this entire past year, and we have a lot of great stuff thought out for next year that we want to get to. 
So yeah, check out my brother Jesse Mansfield's music. We mentioned him earlier. He does the bumps at the beginning and ends of all of our episodes. You can find his stuff on Bandcamp under Party Gator, Opossums, and Big Clown. If you live in the Memphis area, check your local venues because he will probably be playing around you sometime soon. And yeah, beyond that, Derek, do you have any final thoughts? Okay, I'm on. Okay, listen to what I'm going to say. This is a warning to 12 of you who are actually listening to our podcast. The end of the world is tonight. You understand? This very night, Christmas Eve is fucked. Christmas is fucked. It's all fucked. Well, you are at in your homes happily listening to our podcast outside on the streets. The birth of Sally is beginning. I make my living podcasting to like 12 of you. So now, you know, ho, 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 <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you fucks. 